welcome to episode 95 of the Canadian Prepper Podcast, recorded December 6, 2020. My name is Ian, and I live on Vancouver Island. I'm an outdoor enthusiast, sports shooter, and my farm's designated handyman. I'm Alan. I'm a safety trainer, a first responder, security expert, and overall safety nerd. I'm Marty, uh, rural southern Ontario, and uh, the only the only person Ian knows that has successfully managed to keep bees alive. It seems that way. <laughs> Alan? Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please take a few minutes and like us on Facebook, submit a review on iTunes. Uh, we want your feedback, good or bad, even just a topic you want us to cover. You can email us at feedback at prepperpodcast.ca. All right, and uh, if you want to help this show, uh, keep the Canadian Canadian Prepper Podcast on the air, buy some swag. We have both the Canadian Prepper Podcast t-shirt and the tactical Velcro patch at Prepper's, wow, prepperpodcast.ca. All proceeds help keep the lights on and the backup generator fueled. I can't read tonight, apparently. (laughs) That's okay. We've done this 95 times and I still can't get it. Exactly. Anyways, we have some uh, oh. hive, we have some hive bited content for you this episode. Good thing oh, yeah. anything good with with bees. But anyway, we're gonna start off with some preparedness related news. Then we'll let you know what we did for preparedness since our last episode. Then we're gonna get into the main topic, which is beekeeping for preparedness, or as I like to call it, buzzing around news. Oh, Ian, we're gonna have to give you re- reassign you off the off the uh, intro. Uh, um, Two quick articles. One is uh, specifically UK-based, but it's a it's a, a Google um, Google note that they are happy to delete your information, including your forms, your Google Drive contents, your emails, etc. If your account has been inactive for too long, they're looking at two years plus currently. Uh, but they have the the uh, they reserve the right to to get rid of that at all times. Uh, if you go back to one of our earlier episodes about um, data management and security. Uh, you'll you'll remember that we said don't keep all your uh, digital eggs in one basket. So use your drive, that's fine, but don't use it as your sole method of storing data. Another also UK-based um, article, this one actually comes from the CBC, but it's about the UK. Uh, starting ne- this week coming, so tomorrow, um, UK is rolling out a vaccine for... COVID-19. I find it really interesting that in eight months we've come up with a vaccine for something that didn't exist a year ago, but there are other coronaviruses that we've been trying to cure for 50 years or vaccinating us for 50 years, and we can't uh, seem to manage that. So I find that one really, really interesting. Um, but we'll keep an eye on that, and hopefully it's not zombies. Fastest, fastest testing period ever and highest efficacy ever, according to them. So, uh, yeah, zombies, here we come. Zombies. What's that? I am legend. Didn't it start like yeah, that? Yeah, I am legend. Zombie. Well, that was the cure for cancer, and then suddenly everybody was a zombie. <laughs> yeah. um, but I got a couple... did any of them have cancer? No, they were probably the most cancer-free zombies ever. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> That's, <all> the <laughs> That's right. Hey, Doc, my leg hurts. Okay, we cut off your leg. It doesn't hurt anymore. We solved the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't ask about the side effects. Anyway, yep. um, Ontario, uh, once again, they decided to lead the pack. I guess, uh, I, I just thought it was all of Ontario, but I guess it's just Toronto area. Kind of moved into some higher levels of uh, COVID restrictions now. 
Well, there are there. It, it's all it, it's broken out by the by the health units, um, and those health units have a specific geographic region that they that they handle, uh, and the the area that they're moving to is based on the like the or the the color code the system that they're using of restrictions is based on the number of cases per like per pop per hundred thousand or per million in the population. Okay. Um, but it's uh, uh, my area is going from one level to another. I forget exactly where we were. I think we were in yellow and now we're going to orange, uh, which just means that we're uh, restricting retail a little bit more. Not really restricting it, just um, taking more uh, more active screening precautions. So um, not like they're not cellophane wrapping the uh, Costco aisles like Winnipeg or anything? No, not not yet. Um, actually, I don't think restricting what can be sold is part of the uh, part of the plan. But there are so Toronto is in the like lockdown, like gray um, color code, which is the absolute highest level of restrictions. Which is you know no indoor dining, no um, like retail is essentially like curbside only. You can't go into a place to pick anything out. So. Um, I'm sure yeah, it's, people who live in that area are more familiar with it than I am. But you really see some of the issues with uh, see some of the issues with trying to, to make legislation for you know province wide for that has such a, a, a varied sort of geography as, as Ontario. Like I like my my unit, which is quite a large geographic unit. Like we moved to Orange, I think it was, and uh, you know it's like we had like three cases in the hospital. And it's like those three, and, uh, and like they triggered triggered alert because it's the population like per hundred thousand people, but we have such a low population density within our area that like only a couple of cases cause us to to freak out. Yeah, all I know is every time Dougie opens his mouth, it seems it gets tougher and tougher to be there. That's for sure. But... Well, I, I think I think there's there he's he's kind of in a no win situation if he because of the number of people in such a densely packed area like in Toronto, um, he he can't really win if he if he doesn't restrict things and people keep getting sick then he's going to be the least popular man in the world if he keeps restricting things and um, destroys the economy then he's going to be the least popular person in the world and neither one of those is good for anybody. Hmm. I don't think he has. I don't think there. I don't. There's. There's no way for him to for him to come out looking good on this. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, uh, it's it's always the issue when they're they're he's trying to play the popularity contest and, and and not sort of making policy based on principle, and that's just always a losing battle. Yep. Oh, sad. Uh, speaking of sad, uh, Christia Freeland has her eyes on your savings. So uh, I don't know if you guys saw that that little clip from her. Um, I, I, I did, saw actually. it. I, I don't know. I think this particular, um, this particular, uh, article may take that, take that a little bit out of, uh, um, away from the intent of what she was saying, but generally, yeah, I mean, the government, want, the, the, the government, specifically the, the liberal government wants as much of your money as they can get their hands on. Um, and they'd rather have, they'd rather be making interest on it than have you making interest on it. Yeah, so she did mention that uh, she referred to the savings as was an untapped uh, stimulus package that she <laughs> yeah. she, she wanted to tap into. I'm like, 
I hope you just mean that she wants us to spend money, but in reality, I mean, with the bail-in legislation as is, introduced by the conservatives even, uh, yeah, they could just take your savings in the bank and put it towards insolvent banks too, so. Yeah, I, I, I really do, I really do hope that it's, like, you ha- I think, I think what she was trying to get out is, we as the population have the ability to do a lot of good for stabilizing the economy by spending the money that we have. Yeah, I don't know how correct she was, though. She said, you know, a lot of people, have been, because they've been sitting around at home, they, they haven't spent as much as they normally do, so they have more money to spend. But there's a lot of people that have been sitting around because they don't have a job. So they don't have a whole lot of yeah. money saved up, right? Well, plus they prohibited everything they wanted to spend my money on. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I, I, I'm. Because I try and see the world in as much as positive a light as I can, I'm hoping that that's exa- that that's what she's trying to get out, and that it just it didn't come out right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, because it, it certainly didn't come out right. No, it it certainly didn't. And she seems to have a constant sniffle. I hope it's not the COVID, but I have I have my suspicions of what it might be, judging by the amount of time she sniffled in a in a one minute video. <laughs> but, no anyway. Goose. She might have some, Can I say that out loud? Yeah, she might have some expensive hobbies of her own. So anyways, uh, what have we done lately for preps? Uh, see here, as for myself, uh, I've been working a lot. I just came back in to the acreage here the day before, or well, like yesterday morning, I guess. I uh, had a new reloading, reloading order come in. Uh, in order to complement that, I decided to run to the range, do a quick little range trip, scrounge some more brass to meet up with the projectiles I ordered. Uh, got a fancy new powder dispensing scale to uh, keep myself busy during uh, potential lockdowns and or winter, uh, which pretty much puts me into hibernation mode to get dark here around, what, 4 p.m. now? So yep. it's like not much to do, really. Just kind of uh, been fighting a, a battle with all the mud around the acreage because of all the heavy rain, so I've been putting down mulch and rocks and everything else, trying to keep everything from slipping or sliding around. Um, and that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, built a new range toy. And, oh, speaking of which, for the uh, debt repayment thing, uh, just in case uh, somebody decided to help themselves to my savings, I decided to reduce my monthly uh, bill outlay by paying off my truck nice. with some of the money I had in savings. I just had uh, less than a year to go on it anyway. So I thought if they're going to seize it, well, at least that's one less monthly bill I have to deal with. So, Yep. Makes sense. Yeah, so a little financial preparedness. That was what it. Good call. Yeah. Um, I'm finishing up my renos. Uh, did some plumbing and electrical work today. Um, I hate plumbing. Like I just hate it so much. Uh, but it's just about done. Uh, one of the, the benefits of this renovation was that I was able to move my pantry and a lot of my food storage up from the basement, which, of course, means I'm getting it away from moisture. And it's now, you know, on a place in, in a place where we can see it. We can inventory it more readily and um, less, susceptible to, uh, less susceptible to damage. So that was fun, getting that, uh, getting that done today. And... I'm looking forward to this whole thing being done. Otherwise, I started a new diet and fitness regimen this week, which has been awful, just absolutely terrible. Um, Every muscle in my body is sore, and I've eaten more salad in the last week than I did in the last six months. But um, all all in the name of being better prepared for whatever may come. Uh, what uh, changes did you diet? Is it like mostly salads? You mean, or is it uh, just? Um, well, it's, it, this pr- this particular pro this particular program is is uh, um, is a is a coach program that is um, aiming to uh, it's a 12, 12 week program to get 
all the participants kind of as lean as possible. And so it's a very high protein, high, um, high veggie content, very low carb. Um, it's more the, it's more the, the, uh, workouts that go along with it that are absolutely horrific. Uh, <laughs> there's like six a week, which is the, which is challenging. Um, but, uh, we mentioned on the fitness episode, what was that? 10 episodes ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, brute force sandbags. I gave them a bit of a shout out. I actually won a, an Instagram contest through them. So I've got a new sandbag coming. And, um, if you haven't, if, if you want a great sand, like a, a sandbag workout, they're a fantastic product to have good and heavy duty. And they're, um, I'm not being paid to endorse them in any way or compensated. Um, but that's like if you, especially if you have a small area, that's a great way to have one, like one piece of fitness equipment that will do everything for you. Cool. So yeah, that's my week. Uh, without breaking offsec, anything you want to share, Marty? Nope. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I just put in a new as part of some renovations. The house put in a, a cold cellar, so that's. Uh, I guess in 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 line with what we're talking about here. Yeah, that's cool. Um, is it attached to the house or is it a kind of separate thing? Yeah, in the basement, uh, framed into like one of the corners of the basement, uh, and then just like you know insulated the interior walls and added uh, added venting to the outside. That's cool. Yeah, I used to have one of those in Barrie as well when I lived over there, and yeah, it made a huge difference, didn't it? But, see here main topic time so uh let's see here why are we talking about honey today so uh yeah as far as the obvious it's a sweetener makes things taste better uh could be a morale booster in bad times uh as far as uh, everything else goes uh, it's a way of increasing your crop yields as far as uh apples blueberries that type of thing anything that flowers it's a way to do it uh i'm not sure what else uh, it really pollinates other than other flowers as well but keeping bees around Nice thing about it, keeps forever. And, uh, yeah, I was going to say there, Marty, you heard anything about it being a true antibiotic at all, like putting uh, honey on stuff? Um, I don't think it's the... Uh, I don't think it's the honey, I think it's the propolis that they use for the antibiotic properties. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so that's uh, what you should talk about the products right now. Uh, if you keep bees, you get the honey as well, but uh, you want to explain to the listeners what propolis is? So yeah, propolis, and I could be wrong about it being antibiotic. That's that's, I, I don't, uh, I don't, I'm not certain about that, but I think that's the one that's used. But propolis is is sort of a kind of like a, a glue or like a shellac that the the bees uh, produce, and they kind of they they coat everything with it. So the interior hive will get this kind of red gum. That they'll kind of coat all of the walls with it. They'll fill any cracks with it. Uh, it seals, you know, kind of seals everything up. Uh, stops any air air leaks and that kind of stuff. It's just sort of this general glue that they they coat the whole the whole inside of the hive with. Cool. Uh, also, with uh, beekeeping, you also get uh, the pollen. You can kind of collect that as well, can't you? Yep. Yeah. Some guys use uh, pollen traps, and they, they're they're basically just like a like a fine like little mesh. So bees, when they collect pollen, they, bees they uh, they have like a little pockets on the legs. So you'll see like little balls of pollen on their on their legs as they're flying in and out so there's like a little a mesh that kind of knocks a percentage of those of those off their legs as they enter in and it kind of falls in a trap you kind of collect the little pollen that way uh so a lot of people take they'll take 
yeah, the pollen as a, as a way, especially if you have allergies, um, by consuming pollen uh, from your local area, it's said that you're basically kind of taking small doses of things that give you allergic reactions and build an immunity over time. And apparently you can kind of reduce your, uh, reduce your reaction to, to uh, seasonal allergies that way. Yeah, actually, I've tried that. It seems to work around here because I was, wasn't used to a lot of the flowers they had around here and a lot of the stuff that gives off pollen. And it's, yeah, it's worked over the course of seven years, that's for sure. But interesting. Um, never, I don't have allergies, so I've never tried it myself. But, uh, I've, I've, you know, I've heard it's supposed to, supposed to be a thing. Yeah. And come back to it as well. But, uh, yeah, you can also get meat out of honey, of course, by making uh, the, honey, uh, the honey wine from it. But uh, how long have you been keeping bees now? Since we moved out here, I think uh, six years or seven years now. All right, cool. Uh, do you All guys? Right, even- so first off, let, let me just let me give a preference. Everything I answer, this as I'm as I'm answering questions, it's all just kind of based on on my own um, experience and successes and failures as a sort of a backyard beekeeper. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a professional beekeeper. I don't uh, you know I'm not a commercial beekeeper. Um, as I said earlier, I'm just kind of the the only person that Ian knows that successfully keeps bees. And so I, I got tapped for this, this podcast. Um, and, and with beekeeping, there's um, like a lot of things. There's, there's a ton of different ways and there's no right way or wrong way. And a lot of the, the things are climate based. So, you know, how Ian would be keeping bees, uh, you know, in his part of the country could be very different to how people, you know, in my area would want to keep bees because there's just different, different seasonal impacts. So, yeah. It's, all, it's all kind of relative. Like I said, you are an expert because you did keep them alive. I couldn't keep mine alive. So I, I, tried, to <laughs> be, I tried bees for three years. I had zero, zero success, basically. After three years, I had uh, zero honey collected. And uh, so I said I could wait till I was retired to actually put more time into it and try and find a better uh, spot for it and everything else. Because despite the fact I've got like this massive wilderness behind me, they starved out one year. I couldn't believe it. Like there wasn't actually anything happening, but I guess ninety percent of the the hives on the island also died that year, so it didn't feel too bad. But still, it was massive failure. Anyway, and then another year I had a pesticide issue next door, and then the third year I just had like a, a mold issue. I don't know if it was that. Uh, there's a couple of those those bacteria diseases come along, but by the time that third year came along, mm-hmm. I just gave up. So. Anyway, so are so, there are there trees or sorry are there like flowers or buds or sources of pollen that bees prefer over others? I think they're not too uh, picky. Well, go ahead. Yeah, they're, they're really not too picky. It's basically um, so bees are just continuously trying to bring in resources. Uh, so it's not so much that they're that they're picky. It's basically whatever is available at that time they will grab. And the thing is, most plants only, you know, flower for, you know, a couple of weeks out of, the, out of the year. So unless there's a variety of plants around, they actually will starve out because like you see down the States where they actually take like truckloads of bees to like an almond farm and they have the bees there for two or three weeks to pollinate as required. But then after that, it's a food desert for them. So they have to leave because the bees will just die. So they actually move on to the next crop mm-hmm. that's got a different flowering time or maybe it's the same crop, but it, it's in a different climate. And they actually truck these these truckloads of bees around to actually like pollinate as required because yeah it's, it's a very time sensitive thing per plant. Which is very yeah, and that's actually and that's actually I think one of the big contributing factors to the the stress on the bees is uh, like like I live out in an agricultural area, and 
you know, you'd think that with acres and acres of, of you know, plants, but uh, that there'd be a lot of food sources, but it, it's exactly the opposite. Um, with modern farming practices, we don't have hedgerows anymore. Uh, so it's, you know, acres and acres of beans and corn, and that's really not a, a food source for the bees. You know, they get a little bit of pollen um, a, a couple times of the year, but for the most part, it's basically acres and acres of barren desert for the bees. So it's, uh, I, I think that's, you know, really that's, there's certain certain people that are certain things that are looking at in terms of, you know, adding pollinator plots out into the fields and into unworkable land. But uh, that, that's actually one of the big, uh, it's, it's actually one areas where urban beekeeping has an advantage is that there's a lot more uh, diversity of, of, you know, a lot of people have, you know, flowers in their gardens and things like that in the city. Whereas when you're out, out in the country, there's, there's not a lot of uh, food available for them. Yeah. So like, uh, as far as when you started up with your beekeeping, you know, what kind of knowledge requirements or what, how did you start out figuring out how to, how to take care of bees? Uh, basically when I started, I just through books, um, I read, I read sort of several different ones that were recommended as like introductory and, and things to, you know, good, good introductory books for, for beekeeping, uh, and kind of looked at what made sense to me. Uh, based on the different uh, the different ones, and then kind of chose a chose a path based on that in terms of how I wanted to approach it for the first couple of years. And so, what was your goal in that for in those first couple of years? Was it just keep them alive, or was um, like can you kind of adjust your your hive or your stock to different goals? Is that is that a thing? Absolutely, absolutely, it is. Um, so for example, I, I'm a, I'm a backyard beekeeper. I do it, I do it for a little bit as a, a little bit as a hobby. Um, we have a big garden, we have an orchard. So, you know, I, I recognize the, the pollination benefit of it. Um, and then, you know, we do get, you know, honey and for, you know, enough honey for us and for, to, to give out to family and friends and whenever, whoever needs it and stuff like that. So it's just kind of a, a neat thing for us to have in the property. So I'm not, uh, I'm not overly concerned about production. Like I don't need to supply, you know, barrels and barrels worth of honey to, to, you know, keep the lights on kind of thing. Um, and so I be my beekeeping and then the, the sort of the approach I take to beekeeping whereas if I'm a commercial beekeeper and I just need to maximize my, my output of honey, the, th the choices that I'd make would be very different. Is this ironic that, you know, you come on my podcast and my internet kicks out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> a little bit more. How how big a hive does that take? Like, how much space does that take up? So, the hives are. I mean, there is some. Again, there's some variation in that. There's there's a few different hive styles: top bar, um, hives, or warre, or, or. But the the majority of what you see and what you know as a beehive, like that, that kind of square box vertical stack is the Langstroth hive. Uh, that's what I use here as well. Uh, so the square footage for the hive doesn't really change. You'll, you know, you'll have different stacks, but it's more uh, sort of how you manage that hive that, that has differences based on, on if you're doing it for a commercial side of things or not. Uh, of course there's, there's, <laughs> There's a lot of subtle things that you can do to manage your bees to uh, to maximize the amount of, of honey that you get, but that also adds stress to the bees. It's like any farm animal, you know. 
Uh, if you think of, you know, for example, uh, chickens, like the, the Cornish cross breed that are made raised for meat. You know, there's been a lot of genetic selection made in those to put on the most amount of meat as rapidly as possible. But those birds will also die at, you know, 16 weeks instead of 10 weeks because they just can't survive. And similarly with bees, if you're, if you're you know, the, the, the commercial process, it maximizes the amount of honey out, but it also puts a lot of stress on, on the bees as well. So it, it's all kind of trade-offs as to, to how you manage your hives. Yeah, I heard that some guys actually like feeding, you know, sugar basically to the bees to actually like maximize honey output because it's, you know, cheaper to buy sugar and create honey with it than it is to, for them to naturally collect it. But it seems to be a bit of a hard way to do it, I would think. Yes, I would say, uh, per, so personally, I do feed, I do feed uh, sugar water. Uh, basically, I use um, fructose uh, syrup, which is just, uh, you know, white tape, white sugar mixed with water kind of thing, or you can buy it as pre-mix. Some people will actually use, like, uh, some of the commercial guys will use corn syrup, like high fructose corn syrup as well. Um, so I, I use it uh, when I need it. Uh, so if it's, if I have some, uh, a hive that's, you know, early in the season, there's, there's no sources and, you know, they're ballooned up and they're, they're out of food, um, then yeah, I'll feed. Or if, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to build up a hive, then, then I'll feed to help stimulate the, the hive. So I, I wouldn't be opposed to feeding it, but yeah, the commercial guys, uh, I think where, where you're talking about is, is more around the end of the season. So I leave, you know, a lot of honey on my bees. So this is, you know, that's honey that they produce from the flowers and the pollen. It's 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 honey. What we would what you would traditionally think of as honey. I leave that on the bees. Uh, whereas the commercial guys, um, honey is a lot more valuable than sugar syrup. They can they can buy sugar syrup cheaper than they can sell their honey for. So they'll strip all of the honey off the bees. You know, every everything that they make of honey, they'll strip that off, and the, and then in the fall of the year, they feed them back with sugar syrup. Um, and to give them so that the bees will build up sugar syrup in the hive as a, as their supply for the winter, so they'll overwinter on sugar syrup instead of overwintering wintering on honey. Yeah, cause and that, but again, that's kind of that's just one of those those trade offs that you, you make. Yeah, because they need to burn the energy from the sugar water to actually stay warm and, and you know basically stay vibrating for lack of a better term. Um, yeah, just to, to to keep the hive going over the winter, right? Yeah, yeah. So during the winter time, the bees can't, uh, you know, they're not flying. They're not going out. They're not collecting resources. They're not producing honey. So they, you know, they store in, you know, all throughout the year. And then in the winter time, they all stay in the hive. They cluster up. They uh, basically they reduce their numbers way down. They get rid of all the males. So it's just you end up with just a, a small cluster of female bees, and uh, that has to survive your winter. And they will rear some some new brew during the, the winter, but they basically keep a, a tight ball and they consume whatever resources are within the hive over the course of the winter. Yeah, being a male bee actually sounds like a pretty good gig until the fall time, right? You basically just yeah, so the male, <laughs> Yeah, the male bees do nothing. Um, so the, the male male bees are, you know, they're, they're called them drones. Uh, they're, they're really their only purpose that, that we kind of know of within the hive is, is their to uh to breed other queen bees uh so the males they don't work they don't collect honey they don't do you know any of the the uh brood rearing or any of the work within the hive um they eat they consume resources and then they go out and look for queen bees queen other queen bees to have sex with that is their entire purpose <laughs> sounds like a pretty good gig until they actually the mating gets completed then i think they die don't they 
So in the fall of the year, you'll uh, once the weather starts to turn, the, the the bees will kick all of the males out, and they just die. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty sweet gig for a while. Anyway. As far as uh, uh, required equipment, as far as if you wanted to get started up, what would you recommend just as a, uh, you know, like a smoker and a bee suit and everything else? Um, a couple other specialty items? Yeah, you need a few things. You, I'd say you'd want a few things. Um, you know, a lot of people say you know, you don't necessarily need a bee suit, uh, especially when you're first getting started until you're comfortable around the bees. Wear a bee suit. Get used to it. Um uh, you don't want to be your first time trying to, you know, do a hive inspection and try to, you know, all, dealing with all of the other things that you're your first time while also being terrified of being stung and being attacked and, you know, set yourself up for success. So I'd say, you know, have a bee suit to start, uh, have some gloves to start of some sort. Uh, you're going to want a smoker and a hive tool. And beyond that, you know, as long as you, you're, other than that, like your, your actual hive equipment, stuff like that. But, in terms of uh, what you're, what you need for your yourself, yeah, a suit, some gloves, smoker, and a hive tool. Mm. Hive tool is basically just a glorified pry bar and you know screwdriver and scraper, I guess. And that's what it. Yeah, hive tool. It's 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 just a it's a pry bar. Um, it's like a you know like a a small a small little pry bar, and on the other end, there's a couple of different styles. Uh, like a, I, I use a, a J style hive tool. Uh, but that's just a personal preference. There's kind of a few different styles, and, and everyone just picks one and, and goes with it. Cool. Um, yeah, I was going to the say hive, there... And just to explain, the, the Hive Tool's main thing is, like I said earlier, the Propolis, the bees glue everything together, so you need a pry bar just to, to get in and crack everything free and to pull your frames up and split your boxes. You just need something to, to, to get in there and move things with because they, they glue everything together. They glue everything down with that Propolis. I found that, yeah, for the first little while I used the bee suit, then after a while I just didn't bother because, yeah, I was actually had more dexterity without gloves on and everything else to actually, like they said, pry some of these, these frames out. And uh, you're actually jet on the bee, so they didn't get as as agitated. They weren't like as likely to sting or try and sting anyway. And I think after I stopped wearing the suit, I think I only got stung like maybe two or three times. But after that, it, it doesn't even bother you. Like it's it. Because it's not like it's a wasp sting, right? Yeah, I personally, I wear. Um like neoprene gloves, just like, you know what I mean? Like the, like the come in a box of hundreds or whatever, like that mechanics gloves or whatever, that kind of stuff, like the, the neoprene gloves. I, I like that because it gives me all of the dexterity. Uh, they can absolutely still sting through that. It does nothing to, uh, to stop the, the stinger from the bee, but it, it just, uh, it gets rid of the sensation of the bees walking on you. Mm-hmm. So I find like, I, I don't, for whatever reason, just not having that feeling of the of the bees crawling all on, on your hands, it's uh, it just makes me it makes me more relaxed. Um, but it does nothing for protection; it just removes that that sensation. Well, there's some talk about there uh, out there that I guess uh, the odd bee sting actually on your hands did fairly well for people with arthritis and actually hand issues because it actually like I guess the venom did something to loosen up your hands a bit after a while. I don't know. I heard something about that. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I've also, I mean, at the same time, I've also heard that you can develop a, 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 bee, a bee allergy if you get stung repeatedly as well, so I don't know which, uh, take, take your pick. <laughs> yeah, I guess, eh? Um, as far as you... Well, my, my hands are nice and loose, but my throat's closed. I mean, that's not a <laughs> that's not a good trade-off. No, I think I'll pass on that one. Did you uh, start with one colony, or did you start with a few, or how did you start out? 
Yeah, I started off with a few. Um, that was kind of uh, common amongst everything I read recommended, you know, start with multiple hives. And, and after having done that, um, that's definitely a recommendation I would make as well. You know, I'll start off with at least two, uh, you know, pretty well start off with as many as you can kind of justify the, the cost out, outlay. Um, but having multiple hives, it gives you a lot of advantages uh, in terms of, especially when you're new and you don't know what, what you're looking for. You don't know what things should look like. You don't know what the, you know, what the hive should be doing today. Um, you have, when you have multiple, you can see, okay, they're all doing this, that, that's probably normal. But if you have two that are doing one thing and one's doing something else, it, it gives you a reason. Okay, maybe I should look and see why this one's doing something different. You know, it gives you a reference point. Uh, you know, if you look and, and, you know, two of your hives, you know, have exploded in population, but one is still, you know, lagging behind in terms of population, you know, maybe that, that's a, you know, that can trigger you to go and look and see, you know, is the, you know, is the brood pattern okay? Is the queen laying okay? Is there a queen there? Uh, so definitely having multiple hives gives you, just gives you a, and even without opening the hives, you see the activity in the hives. You can kind of see how many bees are coming in and out and stuff like that. And you can, you can, recognize problems a lot easier and, and kind of head them off if you have multiple hives so definitely you know try to get uh, try to get a couple yeah i started off with three myself i put one of them on like on a buddy's organic farm just because he had a variety of plants around and i put two on my property just to see if i could have like a bit of redundancy there and i don't know i think i i must have actually killed the queen somehow when i was installing that hive over the organic farm because the first thing that triggered me was that my two were taking off population wise and his was just stagnant then they just started falling off a cliff because after you know there's a certain time span with the females they all start to die off after a while right if there's no mm -hmm. more eggs being laid and um so yeah that was a bit of a failure my first failure <laughs> anyway but uh yeah we're back talking back to the smoking thing so uh just for the listeners why do we smoke the bees uh smoking smoking has a couple of different things um one is you know it can it can uh signal an alarm that potentially be fire and it can cause the you know it'll cause the bees to kind of go and gorge themselves on on honey and it basically kind of distracts them from what you're doing they're going to go and grab honey and then they, they kind of become fat and lazy and they're not going to be as uh, as aggressive at, at coming and attacking you uh it's kind of the one side of things the other side of thing is that it uh, just the smoke itself uh it disrupts the pheromones so the bees communicate a lot through pheromones uh and so the smoke prevents that communication. And so, for example, if you do get stung, when a bee stings you, it releases uh, an alarm pheromone. So once one bee has stung, uh, all of the other bees smell that and they know that, okay, we're in stinging mode. And so anything at all will cause a whole bunch more to sting you because that's that's what they're doing now. Um, so if you get stung, you can quickly throw some smoke out there and uh and then they can't smell that pheromone anymore and the rest of them don't know what's going on anymore so it, it, it can really help with disrupting that communication side of things as well got a, a question here from philip uh, he says as i understand it there are different breeds of bees uh like most other species uh do you know of a resource to determine which ones will meet your personal priorities and environment uh yes and, and no with with everything with you know the breeds they're, they're generalities so you know uh one one hive of a certain you know uh of a certain species is not necessarily going to follow exactly what that breeds generality is uh but generally you can do some reading but most of our bees we use out here are european varieties of some sort uh, but the main thing i'd say is you know 
find, look at your local suppliers of bees. Uh, I would not be concerned about trying to get a specific breed of bee. I would more be concerned about trying to find local beekeepers that are having, that are successfully keeping bees and getting whatever species that is, because that's a species that works in your area. I, I'd say that's more important than, you know, whatever the internet says, these bees are more docile or these bees produce more honey or stuff like that. Uh, you know, it's good to know those things. And so if you have a, a choice, you could maybe make a decision one way or other. But more importantly is find out what is successful in your area and get that. Yeah, I always remember reading about those Carnolians who were supposed to be the ideal bee. And then there was some Russian varieties and stuff like that. And like Marty said, I had just ordering from the local beekeeper. But it turns out the ones I got came from New Zealand. So they, they weren't suited for this area at all. But then I ended up buying a... Uh, a queen off of a, a local person for the beekeeper club and uh, that one did the best of all of them for sure because uh, I had to replace that queen I killed off of the organic farm so uh, yeah no, it worked out uh, way better uh, over time for sure but, and uh, actually on that note people talk I guess down south about using Africanized bees the, the supposedly these killer bees but uh, supposedly they actually produce a lot of honey but it's also good for the hotter climates too so I mean if you live in a, in a hot zone not necessarily Canada you can try that but i don't know yeah the africanized bees never turned out to be the uh the world-ending phenomena that we thought it was going to be or that it was promised to us by the media at the time uh, I, I don't know much about them you know it's, it's it's a southern thing we don't have them you know we don't have you know africanized bees out here but yeah apparently they do uh they apparently they do produce a lot but they are just more more aggressive how much uh, success have you had, actually, like, as far as, like, how much honey did you get per colony on average per year, or, you know, on average, do you get enough to feed yourself, or even trade off a bunch, or... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, it varies. It varies year by year. It varies by, kind of, the state and what happens with your hives and stuff like that. So, certain, uh, like, last summer, we had, uh, we had nothing but rain. Like, last summer, there, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't two days in a row of sun. Uh, and that, you know, that's, that was very difficult for production from the honey side. So last year wasn't a great year, but other years it's been, it's been great. Uh, I would say on average, uh, for me, I'll, I'll get, you know, two supers per hive, which is 70 pounds per super. So about 150 per, uh, 150 pounds uh, per hive, uh, which basically that, that's the kind of the, the super weight. Um, you get basically about half of that in honey, roughly. So yeah, probably about, probably about 75 pounds or so per hive of, of honey would be an average. Some years more, some years I'll have, you know, three, four, um, but other years maybe only get one super off. So I'd say somewhere around there. Cool. Do you uh, so keep any of your wax got, or anything? Oh, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say the same thing. So you, you, yeah. you take all that stuff out and then you keep the honey and then what do you do with the rest of it? What is it and what gets done with it? So, yeah, I, I get a fair bit. Of, so I use, uh, we'll probably talk about that afterward, but I use a uh, crushing strain um, method of extracting. We'll talk about it after. But uh, so with that, I get I get a fair bit of wax production. Um, so I have uh, I have an uncle who's a blacksmith, and uh, he uses the beeswax for a finish for blacksmithing. Um, so when he's done blacksmithing stuff, he kind of rubs it all off in, in, in beeswax, and that's kind of the, the finish he uses. So he... He just gets, uh, I process the wax out into blocks and, and he uses it for, for blacksmithing. Um, but 
and that that's that's basically all. I I don't collect the propolis. Uh, I don't collect pollen. Um, I don't really have uh, use for it right now. I, I'm aware that some some people are are into that stuff. I've not really. Uh, I'm not into the the alternative medicine type stuff too much. So. Mm-hmm. Um. I was told like roughly 40 hours per hive per year, but uh, how much time do you think you spend on each one? Definitely not that. Okay. Uh, again, this comes down to uh, this comes down to the methodology that you take for, for beekeeping. I, I, I follow, I, and how I started off, the kind of the, the, the methodology that I followed initially, and I've adapted and, and changed things based on successes and failures over the years. But the one I kind of follow is by, it's Michael Bush, and he's got a book, uh, Practical Beekeeper, by uh, Michael Bush. Um, and it's basically lazy beekeeping. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's actually, you know, a kind of quoted, that's kind of way he refers it. it and uh, I follow it a lot. It's very much a let the bees be bees, um, but it's, it, is not a method of commercial beekeeping, really. I mean, he does it commercially, but I would. It, it is not a method that that lends itself to, you know, maximizing the output at all. It's basically, you know, letting the bees be bees and uh, and then reaping the excess, as opposed to really intensively managing the the hives. Uh, so I don't spend. Uh, I do not have to take two two. Uh, I definitely am not forty hours per hive. Um, you know, I, I might look at the hives depending on the time of the year. I might open them up, uh, for a quick check once in a while, uh, maybe once every couple, two, three weeks. Um, during the flow, I'll probably take a peek, but so that they're on my property. So I don't need to, uh, you know, I don't need to like go to a VR or stuff like that. So when I t- say take a peek, I mean, I'll, as I'm walking by with the dog, I'll take the lid and I just lift it up and I look at it and see kind of how they're coming, filling it that super, see if they need a new super, and then put the lid back on. So I'm talking, you know, five seconds per hive kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it depends on what's going on and what I need, but definitely it's not a, a large time investment. Um, your first year probably is going to be more time because you're going to want to be a little bit more hands-on till you know what to look for and what to, what, what you're looking, you know, uh, what to expect. Uh, but for me at this point now, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty hands-off. I, it's, it's not a lot of time. Cool. So when the time comes, uh, we talked about uh, one of the harvest methods, though, but if there's honeys already to be harvested, how many different ways are there to get the honey and stuff off? Uh, there's, basically two, there's, there's basically two methods. One is, is what I do, which is crush and strain. That's appropriate for a small number of hives. Uh, and basically, uh, so all of my beehives are all, I run them foundationless, uh, so that I don't provide any kind of, uh, commercially produced foundation that the bees then, uh, build out. So that's kind of the, um, the frames themselves, mine are blank. So there's just nothing in there and the bees build comb in them as bees would build, as they would naturally build comb. Um, so I get just a pure wax, uh, frame full of honey, I I take a knife, I cut it out, so I end up with a big square, it all goes into uh, a pail with a filter, and it just gets crushed up, and the filter filters the wax out, and the honey drifts through. So it's, uh, it's pretty simple, 
it's you know it's a bit of a messy sticky job but uh other than that it's 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 pretty simple it's pretty cheap uh you know you're, you're not looking at a lot of money you're talking a couple of five gallon pails with the with a honey gate on it and and uh filter cloth and, and it's, it's uh and you're good to go um more commonly and i'm going to be moving to this now as i'm kind of expanding is uh is an extractor uh and so with an extractor you instead of you know cutting the entire comb the honeycomb that's been out you're just skimming the top surface so when the bees uh when the honey is fully mature and they basically brought the, the honey down to a certain moisture level they cap it they put a little a thin wax cap over each cell so you just scrape that that cap off to expose the honey and then it just goes into uh, essentially a centrifuge that spins the spins the combs and the honey flies out and you, and you extract it that way. Um, so it's the, the big advantage with doing it that way is uh, for one, it's it's a little it's faster, a little simpler, um, but also you get to keep your comb from year to year to year. So for next your next season when you go to put your frames on for for your honey frames, the the, the wax is already drawn out. So they don't need to build the wax anymore. They just need to fill it with honey. So you get a little more production that way too. Fair enough. I saw those flow hives being advertised where they basically have these boxes kind of pre-built and at the end of the year you just kind of crack them and it all kind of flows out the bottom and stuff, but they look pretty expensive. So it's it's pretty expensive. Uh, okay, anybody, don't buy those. <laughs> That's <laughs> the thing now. Don't buy. So, like, the only thing that it saves you, you still have to manage a hive. You still have to do all of your normal things with all your normal frames underneath it. The only thing that that replaces is your honey supers. And so, the one job it replaces is the extraction of the honey. But that's, like, one of the simplest things that there is. Like, that's that's not a, uh, a big deal. So, it, it's kind of a solution for... A problem that doesn't exist like you know being extracting the honey is a, is a pretty you know it's, it's the best part of the job right that's 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 what you worked all year to do was to get that honey out so that's i don't know it's 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 expensive and and unnecessary it seemed a little uh i don't know posh to me but what are you gonna do and so uh, once once you've extracted that honey and you've got it in your your pail, obviously it goes into smaller containers, kind of in, individual containers. Do you have to do anything else to it? Like, does it get pasteurized or does it get preserved in any way? No, uh, personally, no. Unpasteurized honey is per- perfectly safe to to have, so yeah, and it keeps forever. Yeah, some of the stuff sold in stores has been pasteurized. Uh, I guess just because of. You know food safety laws but no there's no reason to pasteurize it at stores uh, it will it will kind of crystallize uh, over time so it kind of if you've ever seen honey it kind of turns that white uh and becomes more solid uh, but then you just kind of well, granular it, right yeah gra- yeah granulates um and then you just you just heat it up and it goes right back to liquid form again cool yeah if you put it in warm water it'll just it'll go back to liquid for sure yeah uh, let's see here, cost savings overall, like, I mean, once you throw all the sugar that you bought in and everything else, um, obviously cheaper than buying store-bought honey, assuming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't seem convinced of that. No, I'm not super convinced. You're not, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to be, uh, 
saving a substantial amount of money by the time you you're invested in in all your hive equipment and all your supplies and stuff i'm sure over time it works out in your favor but uh i would say you know if, especially for for a small if you're doing it for your back you know backyard small production type of thing um i wouldn't look at it as a as a way of substantially lowering your bills your household bills i i think you're you're probably not going to be in the black, but. But hey, at least you know some more stuff you didn't know before, right? Yeah, you know some stuff you don't know anymore. You have a source, regardless of what happens. Uh, you have a skill. You have uh, some bartering ability. Like there's there's all kinds of benefits to it. I just think it's not necessarily going to be in your your uh, your household bills. Yeah. Uh, big thing, I guess, uh, has come in the last what twenty years: the uh, parasites and predators aspect. Uh, so this varroa mite that's come to North America, can you tell us a little bit about that? I can. Um, so again, I'm going to talk about my, my personal experiences with it. Uh, I do treatment-free uh, beekeeping as part of the, uh, you know, the, the lazy beekeeping approach. Um, I don't treat for varroa mite at all. Uh, I don't treat for nosema or any, any of those things like that. Uh, I have not had any issues with varroa mite personally um that at least i've not had any uh i've not had any losses that i could directly attribute to to varroa mite um i have but that that's being said read again i'll, I'll re reference back to the same book uh michael bushes he has a lot you know he has all the scientific studies linked in there as to why you know you may not need to to treat, uh, you know, part of which is just simply, you know, survival of the fittest. You know, you don't want to be propping up uh, bees that don't have the ability to to survive, kind of thing. Uh, and you'd ra you'd rather, you know, push genetics that are that are tolerant. Uh, so that's kind of one thing. Uh, the other thing is by going foundationless. Uh, foundationless frames is similar to small cell frames, which is just re re referring to the the cell size within the the the, uh, the honey frames. Mm -hmm. um, it has advantages for uh, mite control because the smaller cell size in, in either small cell foundation or in uh, foundationless, it allows the bees to um, to manage the hives themselves. So they can, because of the small, the small cell, there's no room in the cell with the bee for the varroa mite. And so the varroas can't uh, infect the hive at the same percentages and the same levels as they can with the larger cell size. Uh, but with the larger cell size, you get more volume of honey per frame. And so it's, it's one of those trade-offs. When you go to the larger cell size, you're going to have more honey production, but you're going to have to treat because the bees can no longer manage the varroa mite. So you have to manage the varroa mite. Uh, and so it's, you know, that's a, it's a trade-off you, you have to choose and then, you know, kind of deal with, uh, on your side of things. So personally, I don't, uh, I don't, I basically, I sacrifice production and, and don't have to deal with it. And I don't have to deal with the chemicals. I don't have to, you know, treat regularly. Um, you know, my bees just kind of deal with it on their own. There are, strains of bees that are being developed right now uh that are uh they're what do they, they call them anyways but basically the bees attack the the bees attack the varroa mites they chew they chew the varroa mites so they basically go and like aggressively bite all the varroa mite up and and, and kill off the varroa mite 
So that's something that's being developed right now is these kind of new strains that, that'll go after and attack the varroa mites. But otherwise, if you just let them, uh, you know, especially if you're using larger cells and, and, and you can get an infestation of varroa mites, your varroa mite levels get, you know, high enough, they, they, they will, you know, kill off a hive essentially. Yeah, I know I lost one to veromite for sure. And around here, everybody seems to be dropping the oxalic acid and the formic acid like there's no tomorrow. So I don't know if that's just a regional thing or what the deal is. But Yeah, the uh, oxalic acid is relatively new compared to the formic. Um, at least it's newer than I, you know, from, from what I've been hearing. Uh, it's It seems to be quite, uh, quite impressive in terms of it has, uh, you know, it does a good job of combating the... the uh, the Varroa, and it seems to have very little sort of side effects on the bees. Uh, so that this does seem to be a, a very uh, good treatment option if you are going to treat uh, the oxalic acid, oxalic acid vaporization uh, method. Um, that, that does seem to be working pretty good. I also heard some guys using icing sugar as a kind of a more natural method too. They just kind of <laughs> get some bees covered in icing sugar and they basically, uh, as they're cleaning themselves off, they actually pull some mites off uh, naturally, but... I don't. I've I've seen I the icing that's how you sugar got rid of used lice. for. <laughs> yeah, I I've seen the icing sugar used for uh, doing mite counts. So you can for doing mite counts, you can either use icing sugar um, or uh, or alcohol, an alcohol wash. Yeah. I've not seen it as a treatment as, as specifically, but yeah, quite possibly it would have the same effect. It it, it wouldn't it wouldn't harm them. It's just sugar. Uh, so if it, if it knocks any uh, varroa off, it would be beneficial. Yeah. Um, have you seen any like chemical effects in your area with people with using pesticides or you have any like theories on this, what this colony collapse disorder is all about? Yes. I mean, we could have, we could have an entire podcast <laughs> talking about this side of things. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know if it's a thing or if it isn't. I, I just honestly don't know. It, it is. It is a thing. These are all things. Yeah. Uh, pesticides, the big one, uh, and that's as a uh, as a result of Ontario, which is the province that I'm in. Um, the Ontario Bee Association several years ago basically pointed the finger at neonicotinoids, which is I'm sure if anyone that's been hearing bee conversations, they've they've heard this this name, uh, and they basically said neonicotinoids is what's causing the bees to die, and uh, it's. There's a lot of issues when you're talking in, or you know, when you're talking nature. You're talking sort of any sort of living organism. Uh, it's always, it's never going to be one thing like that. And I think this is this is this was a big failure of the Ontario Bee Association to just basically say it was that because um, governments love having a you know a single dimensional thing that they can just make a law against, make a law about. Uh, so then basically it triggered the government to just go, okay, we'll make a law against those, wash their hands, the bee problem is fixed, uh, without actually addressing, you know, any of the other impacts, impacts on, on the bees. And for sure, pesticides that are impacting bees, that is definitely, you know, that's not good for the bees. If the bees are bringing in, uh, you know, pesticides, that, that obviously pesticides kill bees. So if they're bringing in poison... Uh, that's not a good thing for the hive. That is going to, you know, weaken the hive. Uh, but th I think that really that's, it's only one factor. 
Uh, I think a, a bigger, uh, I mentioned earlier, a big factor about uh, that that are that is a stressor on the bees is our change to our landscape. Um, our our modern agriculture, our, you know, the way we manage the land around us is deserts for our pollinators. So yes, we, you know, there's there's a couple of weeks out of the year where our beans are flowering, where our corn is flowering, but the rest of the year, there's nothing for them. And so you, you know, other than you get a little bit on the road roadsides of which the cities come and, and they, you know, they they mow down the, the ditches, and so there's really it's it's a lack of resources i think more than anything um as as one of the main impacts on on the bees as one of the main stressors in the bees uh it's the neonicotinoids they don't help there was some valid arguments raised by the the uh the bee association in terms of the neonicotinoids how that uh you know pesticide was approved for use was the basis that it was you know on the seed and not going to be on the plant so that you know insects and native insects weren't going to be have access to it because it was on the seed in the ground mm-hmm. uh, and that that was true up until the point when they started using air seeders which started blowing the the, the powder off of the you know blowing that that poison off of the seed and, and into the surrounding landscape that's kind of what, what was a big shift on the neonicotinoid side of things so they, they you know there was some some valid points raised uh but to, to kind of point everything on on that was i think uh, a big mistake um especially when you look at sort of other provinces and other areas around that have the same the same neonicotinoids but not the same level of colony collapse disorder as, as what was kind of being reported here uh i think it was um yeah i, I think it's just it's a it's a lot of different things I think the main issue is a lack of resources, uh, personally. Mm, sounds like Ian's. Oh, I'm back, back now. There we go. Oh, finally. There we, go. <laughs> there we are. Yeah. Okay. Where we leave off there. Um, so you you kind of talked about the uh, about the, the Ontario Beekeeping Association kind of drop the ball on that. What about your local beekeeping clubs? Are they uh, a worthwhile um, worthwhile time expenditure? It all depends on. I think it, it depends on your on on your local bee association, and it depends on you. Um, if you you know if you want. Uh, you want a mentor if you want to be able to have people local to you to be able to ask and answer questions and help you know look at your hives and stuff like that i think they can be a great resource if you don't want any of that like if you just want to be doing your own thing and you don't want anybody bothering you then then don't join like it it all depends uh a lot of the local bsb clubs will have uh you know they'll have extractors like honey extractors and things like that uh, that will that you can you know use or rent which will help you from having to buy uh, buy your own equipment. Uh, a lot of times you can get kind of used or, or, uh, you know, group buy on equipment through a local, local group. So there's, there's usually a lot of advantages, but it's, it's up to, it all depends on, on the individual riding association or the individual, uh, you know, sort of beekeeping association and the individual, uh, person as to whether, you know, whether it's a benefit or not. Okay. Um, 
And the, the most important one, the most important question of, of, the, of the entire evening, uh, Mead, have you tried to make it? Is it? Has it been successful? How can we get oh. alcohol out of this? Yes, excellent question. I will say this. When I was getting into bees, I had every intention. I'm like, well, apparently you can make mead with it too. That that would be, I like alcohol and uh, free alcohol is better not a than this kind yes. of alcohol. Uh, so one of the first things I did is I went out to try and kind of find uh, a mead, uh, try a bunch of different, I never actually even had mead. So so I went, went out to try a bunch of different meads to find one that I like to try to have a, a reference point to try to recreate. Um, so I bought basically every type of mead that was available to me and I hated all of them. <laughs> and so then I tried like different, uh, different like sizers and stuff like that, that were like sizers, no sizers, the apple ones. I don't like, basically it's like mead mixed with like, uh, cider and mead mixed with beer and stuff like that. And some of those were like, they were drinkable to me. But, like, not nearly as good as if I just had the beer or if I just had the cider. And so I decided... So you're saying it's not uh, worth it? It wasn't worth it for me. Uh, obviously, I have some friends that are brewing mead right now, and they like it. Uh, for me, it like everything I had tasted like cough syrup. I just could not... All I could taste was uh, was cough syrup in, in mead. Uh, I don't know what it is. Like, obviously, the honey tastes good. Uh, alcohol tastes good. But for some reason, when you alcohol make alcohol out of honey it tastes like cough syrup to me so uh, i i never actually ended up uh making any mead myself it's probably a good thing you didn't grow up in medieval times then i guess eh? <laughs> yeah i'd have to i'm sure i'd find a way but uh, as long as i have choices then I, i'll take the other choice <laughs> awesome uh that's pretty much all i had alan yeah uh, it's, it's... It's it's a lot of information. Um, anything anything else you want us to know, Marty? If we want to begin keeping bees and making honey. Um. No. The only thing I would say is that you is uh, is getting bees. You have options. We should just mention that quickly. Is like how to get bees. Yes, uh, absolutely. So you actually uh, there's basically you can buy you can buy bees in in different ways. Um, you can buy a box of bees, which just comes in. It's literally a, a box of uh, ten thousand, you know, ten pounds of bees or whatever. And uh, and it's you basically just take the, the lid off and you shake it into a hive that's been prepared for them. Uh, you can buy a nuke, which is probably what I would recommend uh, if you're starting out. Uh, and it's basically a a small hive. It's, four or five frames already established, ready to move into a full-size hive. So they're basically out of room on that five-frame hive, ready to move up. Okay. Um, or you can buy already established hives. Uh, they're, you're going to be paying a fair bit more money for you know already already established you know full ten-frame hive. And the other thing you have is just to catch them, catch them, catch a wild uh, swarm yourself. Uh, so there's there's you know instructions online for how to build a swarm trap. You nail it up in in some trees. And uh, you know, throw a few of those out around your, your community and around your town, and and uh, keep an eye on it in the spring. And uh, you, you, it's a good chance you'll you can you can catch your own uh, swarm and uh, free bees that way. Now, I I seem to remember learning when I was a kid that the queen never leaves the hive. Is that accurate? 
But she leaves for mating flights. Okay. Uh, so, no- so yes and no. So uh, as Ian, as Ian said, yes. The, so at the once a when a when a new queen emerges, uh, she's uh, she's not been fertilized yet. So there's all those uh, those male drones from other colonies that we mentioned. So the queen doesn't mate with uh, drones from her own colony. Uh, so f- for genetic diversity, she mates with cro- with drones from a different colony. So yeah. once she emerges, she will leave the hive and fly around, find males that have been looking for a queen. She mates repeatedly and then flies back to the hive and she's fertilized for life at that point and she stays in the hive. Okay. The one exception is a swarm. Uh, if a, a hive, and that's kind of how uh, bees uh, repopulate, is they they basically split. The, the hive will divide into two, and half the hive will leave. So what they'll ah. do is the hive, uh, the bees, so bees decide, uh, basically the worker bees decide uh, what type of bee is going to be raised from any fertilized egg. So the, the, the bees can take any single fertilized egg can become a, another queen. It can become a drone or it can become a worker. And the bees decide what it's going to be. It's not just, uh, you know, it's not kind of random. Uh, so if they're going to swarm, what they'll do is they'll make a bunch of sort of queen cells within the comb. The queen will lay an egg in each one of those. They'll make a bunch of queens and uh, they'll, they'll close up. And, and shortly before those new queens hatch, the queen will leave the hive with about half the hive and they'll find, they just, they'll leave and go look for a new home. Basically, they'll look for a new place to establish that colony. Okay. And then the remaining bees that are left will, uh, those, those queens will then hatch out. And then one of the, the first queen to hatch out will kill off all of the other queens that haven't hatched yet. And she'll be the queen for that, for the remaining bees. So you will, you can catch that swarm that, that left. You can actually okay. catch those swarms and then establish a, a hive off of that, that caught swarm. Um, which is usually a, a good, uh, it's a good starting point because they'll, they'll, they swarm in the spring. And if they swarmed in the spring, that means that that is a, a, a genetic line of bees that was successfully overwintering in your area and thriving in the spring. That makes sense. So it's usually a it's, a it's usually a good genetic starting point because it's 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 a proven successful line of bees for your area, right? And I say somebody will usually complain about a swarm of bees sitting on a tree branch or something like that in their local area on some sort of social media, and you might be able to be lucky enough to catch it on time. Yep. And, and the nice thing is when you're catching a swarm, a swarm is uh, they're very docile. So you basically. I mean, I won't say I, I have been stung while moving a swarm, uh, but it's you really have to to do something dumb, which I did uh, <laughs> to to get stung while moving a swarm. Uh, there, you can you know you can just grab handfuls of them with your bare hands and just grab handfuls of bees and move them from one spot to another, and they're not going to sting you. The, the the swarms when they swarm, they're they're very docile. They're they've all been uh, they've all basically filled up on honey. And uh, they're all kind of fat and dumb at the time, and um, it's usually it's my it's, it's uh, what's that? They're my people. Yeah, <laughs> fat, dumb, and slow. Yeah, usually yeah, exactly. 
So yeah, there, it's uh, it's 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 nowhere near as intimidating as it as it appears when you see someone kind of grabbing, you know, tens of thousands of bees and, and moving them. Interesting. Yeah, so well, you guys then, just take a tree branch with a swarm on it, just dump it in a box and tape it off, and it's good to go. Yep. Mm. Yeah. So if, if you're lucky, they're on a branch. I've had uh, the one the one where I got stung was it was on the trunk of the tree that I couldn't move. They were just kind of balled around the trunk of the tree. And uh, I was uh, I was in a hurry, and I'm I was standing there in, in shorts and sandals and short sleeves, and I was just grabbing handfuls of bees and <laughs> tossing them in a box. <laughs> uh, eventually, I got eventually I got stung on the ankle, or I dropped them on my feet. But that's not bad, though. Yeah. Well, podcast challenge time. Podcast challenge. If this interests you, take up the uh, Michael Bush. Practical Beekeeper book, or uh, consider attending a local beekeeping club meeting, or beekeeping society, or whatever moniker they're using. YouTube. There, there's a lot of really good YouTube, a uh, lot of good information on YouTube. There's uh, one YouTuber is the Canadian the Canadian Beekeepers Blog or Canadian Beekeeping Blog. He's a guy out of uh, Alberta. He's a commercial beekeeper, um, and he basically blogs his entire uh, season every year. Uh, that's a really good resource uh it's canadian uh and so it it is representative of a canadian winter and he's in an area that gets like canadian winter cool yeah. there you go if that that is your challenge for this week if this is interests you go learn some more and there's lots yeah. of there's lots of resources for that and usually it's free like this even the beekeeping clubs well even locally here will let you attend you know for a really long time before they worry about asking you for a membership fee. They just want more members, right? So they're happy to have you, usually. Anyway, uh, upcoming events. Uh, I got the BC Sportsman Show, March 5th to 7th, 2021. And the link is in the show notes for the uh, bcsportsmanshow.ca. Um, and as an event, um, the 2021 CCFR Gunny Girl calendar is now on sale. Link in the show notes as well. And all, C- all proceeds will help to fund the women's shooting sports. Uh, it looked like they were in. Uh, they were here in London, uh, or near me in London, uh, over the weekend, and seemed to be a fairly well attended event, as best it can be under the circumstances. Um, it's a fundraiser, but it also has lots of giveaways and such. So, go buy a calendar. Yeah. Preserve our way of life. All right, the hundredth episode of uh, Canadian Pepper Podcast is coming up, so we plan to uh, publish the link to join the show, which is in Streamyard here. Uh, so, any listeners that are listening in on the hundredth episode will be welcome to come on, uh, join us, ask questions, uh, complain about us, whatever you want to do. I mean, <laughs> we're open to suggestion. Uh, also, looking for any uh, panelists that were on here previously, please feel free to come on and say hi. So yeah, that's Tyler. Yeah, that'll probably be like mid-January by the time we hit episode 100, but we'll put lots of notice up on Facebook and the uh, website as well. So, Shoutouts! Um, I had something and then I completely forgot it, so carry on. Oh, actually, uh, I will shout out the uh, London Search and Rescue um, organization. They've been going through some uh, reorganization lately, and they just put on a heck of an auction to replace a bunch of um, equipment that was stolen from them um, a few months back, so great for them, and I hope to... Uh, see more from them in the uh, in the near future. Alright. Cool. Uh, I got one for Janine and Henry from uh, Budget Tutor Supply. So I had a package swirling in the vortex of the Burnaby Distribution Center for about three weeks and uh, 
uh, talked to talked to Canpar, of course, no luck there, and talked to uh, Janine from Budget Studio Supply. She gave him a phone call, put the fear of God in them, and I think it was the very next day I had it in my hands on the island here. So that was uh, pretty fast. So <laughs> that was good. And then uh, before we were at I had a, a very minor uh, issue with one of my uh, toys that I bought off of them, and I sent it to them, and they turned it around, I do believe, in less than two days. And had it back in my hands within a week, so that was fantastic as well. So, uh, good for Maple Ridge Armory out of Barrie, Ontario. And, uh, email iTunes reviews. We got an email from Carlos, and Carlos says, Hello, how's it going? We're doing great, Carlos. Thanks very much for asking. I hope you're doing well also. Hope all is well. Well, given the circumstances, it is. Uh, Carlos says, I have some cool information that might interest you. Your podcast, Canadian Cover Podcast, has some good performance in some rankings in the last 30 days. Position 3 in the category of how-to for Poland. Position 3 in the category of how-to for Greece. Position 3 in the category of how-to for Luxembourg. And position 5 in the category of how-to for Canada. It tells me we're more popular in Europe than we are here. Yeah, I mean, also the scale is a little bit different, right? Uh, How many... uh, um, you know, I I don't know what the exact population of Luxembourg is, but it's not huge, so it's, it would stand the reason that our that the word travels fast amongst a smaller population. Fair enough. Thanks a lot, Carlos. Uh, with that, I'm going to bring episode 95 of the Canadian Prepper Podcast to an end. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Please help us out and submit a review. Helps other people find us. We do record these shows live on Facebook and YouTube. If you want an early peek at the show, subscribe to the YouTube channel, Canadian Prepper Podcast, and click the link on the notification, click the notifications tab. That gives you an alert when we're going live. You can also do the same thing on Facebook. If you want to get me directly, uh, you can find me, Alan, at prepperpodcast.ca. Right on. Uh, if you have a question for Marty, just send it in to uh, feedback at prepperpodcast.ca. And you can reach uh, Ian directly by emailing me at thewesternretreat at gmail.com. You can also find me on Canadian Patriot Podcast, occasionally with Marty as well, on iTunes and YouTube. There you can find us discussing why government waste in society makes you feel like a worker bee. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, be prepared, stay safe. And keep learning. <laughs>